according to Jewish tradition, at the Feast of Tabernacles, there were four 75-foot-high candelabra, and they stood in the court of the women in the Jerusalem temple. And each candelabrum had four branches on it, and at the top of every branch, there was a huge bowl. And four young men would climb, they would bear these big pitchers of oil, and they would climb ladders and fill the golden bowls and set them alight. So picture this, right? You have 16 enormous, fierce blazes leaping toward the sky on top of the hill that Jerusalem's on from these enormous golden lamps. And the light was to remind people of how God's glory had once filled this temple. And it looked forward to that glory returning to the temple. And it was into that scene that Jesus entered in John's Gospel, chapter 8. He was teaching in that court soon after that illumination ceremony. And standing in that court right next to these magnificent candelabra, it's in that context that Jesus says to the crowds gathered there, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so our text today from John chapter 9 should be seen as a kind of illustration, a sort of enacted parable that shows us just how it is that Jesus is the light of the world. That's what this text is doing. So with that, we'll make three points. They're at the back inside page of the bulletin. The healing, the interrogations, and then blindness and sight. So, so first, the healing itself. Jesus leaves the temple precincts, and he sees this man born blind from birth. And the disciples say to him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, there's a, there's a bunch of assumptions buried in the question. It's true, of course, in a general sense, human sinfulness, our being fallen creatures in Adam, that's the cause of human misery. Even in specific cases, once in a while, it can be the case that a malady is the result of an individual sin. Right? But that it's invariable, that it is always so, Scripture flatly denies that. Right? There's a wonderful story in the Gospel of Luke that goes to the issue here. Right? Jesus is told that Pilate had slaughtered and killed some Galileans who had come down to sacrifice. And then he mixed their blood, the blood of the victims, with the blood of their sacrifices. And when he's told about this, Jesus denies that this means that these people were worse sinners than any other people. But the disciples here, they haven't progressed beyond Job's counselors. Right? They, they see a malady and they think we have to figure out whose fault it is. So they assume either the the sin of the parents or the child must be the cause of the blindness. 
And of course, Jesus says, no, neither one. It happened so that the glory of God might be displayed in him. Or more specifically, so that God's light can shine in his darkness. Because Jesus flatly tells us in the text, we should interpret this miracle as a sign of his being in the world as light, as illumination. So then he performs the miracle. It's a very well-known story. Strangely, he spits on the ground and makes some mud with saliva. This, this could be an allusion back to Genesis where God made man from the dirt of the ground. Because here we have an act of recreation. We have a new, there's a new word that's going to be spoken here. A new, let there be light. So Jesus takes some mud. In any event, he tells the man, put the mixture on your eyes, and he sends him to the pool of Siloam, which here means sent. John tells you that in parentheses. Now, this is significant because this is the work of the one sent by the Father. So he sends him to the pool that means sent. He goes and he washes and he comes home. He leaves the area. He goes home seeing for the first time in his life. It's an astonishing miracle, and John spends a lot of time on it. There's lots of details in the story that clearly come from first-hand or second-hand recollections. So the neighbors and others are not even sure this is the same guy. But he insists that he is, and he tells a story about how Jesus healed him. He doesn't know where Jesus is. They can't get to him. So they send him to the Pharisees because they're experts in the law and they can examine these cases of alleged miraculous claims. They're the court. And so that brings me to the second point here, the interrogations. What we see in this text are three really ludicrous interrogations. Three ludicrous interrogations. They interrogate the man, then they interrogate his parents, then they interrogate the man again. And again, I don't know why John does this, but he buries the lead. He says this, the day on which Jesus, notice this carefully, the day on which Jesus made, made mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. We've already seen this before, right? Jesus is going to heal on the Sabbath intentionally. So, you might recall back when we looked at Jesus healing the blind man at the pool of Bethesda, we mentioned that the Pharisees had come up with 39 different types of work that were forbidden. And and back then, the issue was carrying a burden. So, the the paralytic was healed, and they they were worried that he was carrying his mat on the Sabbath, and carrying a burden is a violation of one of the 39 listed forms of work that the rabbis had developed. So again, we see the uniquely pious mind at work here, in its very devotion, becoming misshapen, even monstrous. It takes a certain sort of religious fervor to do this. So, You know what the issue is here? On that list of 39 different types of forbidden work was kneading. 
K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G, like kneading dough. So, says the pious religious mind of the devout Torah following, is, is making mud out of dirt and saliva a form of kneading? I'm telling you, there is no monstrosity like religious monstrosity. It is astonishing. So this is the question. He spit on the ground and he took mud. But we have a tradition from the rabbis that says you can't knead dough on the Sabbath day. There was even a debate among the rabbis as to whether on the Sabbath it was permissible to anoint your eye, a sore eye. Because when you anoint, you have to kind of rub like this. And so the question is, does that bleed over in to kneading. It is not enough for these people that Holy Scripture gives you Sabbath legislation. It's just not, right? They have to say, well, we have to figure out, we have to define, the Scripture forbids working on the Sabbath. We're going to have to define what work is. Right? I mean, people are going to come to us and say, is this work or not? And so, so they're now concerned that Jesus was needing. So they asked the man how. Again, the fact that the guy received his sight. But how? How? How exactly did you get your sight back? We'd hate for you to get your sight back in a way that created a legal infraction somewhere. So the guy sticks to the facts. He says, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and now I see. What does he know, right? He's no philosopher. So the Pharisees are divided into camps. You can see this in the text. One says this. They say, Jesus is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. That's actually a sound argument, right? It's a principled argument. This is why I say we're the ones who are susceptible to becoming like these people. Right? There's a Sabbath law. Yes, we have a tradition of interpreting the law. Jesus doesn't keep the Sabbath. Therefore, he's not from God. It's the kind of argument we make in our circles all the time. It's an argument from the word of God to the circumstance, right? In between, of course, there's a corrupt interpretation and application of the word of God, but it's the same form of an argument that we make. And then others say, how can a sinner perform such miraculous signs? Now, this, beloved, is a really lousy argument. It starts with the facts on the ground and says, look, a magnificent thing happened. We know that false prophets can do signs. Deuteronomy tells us that. Jesus warns against false miracle workers. The the magicians in Egypt did signs. But of course, in this case, these folks are right. Sometimes what seems like an airtight argument is not, and what seems like a weak argument just happens to be right. This is that case. And so they're divided, so they don't know what to do. So picture this. This is rare for the, for the court. They ask the man his opinion. And he doesn't care. This guy doesn't care about the niceties of Sabbath regulation. He says, he's a prophet. All right, so the guy's not exactly a theologian either, but this is his best guess. He's a prophet. Prophets do signs, but not like this sign. And so the court, the Pharisees still don't believe 
that this man's received his sight. So they go for his parents. Now they want to send for his parents. They're very careful about this sort of thing. And they get the parents, and the parents, you can watch, this is a dodge from the parents. They say, yeah, he was born blind. That's the issue. But as to how he came to see and who healed him, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. Which means he's probably 13. He's older than 13, which was the age at which a Jewish male could testify in court. So he's of age means, you know, you can, he can speak for himself. Of course, John tells us why the parents did this, right? They were afraid. Because the, the, the Sanhedrin had already decided that whoever confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed Messiah, whoever does that is going to be put out of the synagogue, meaning excommunicated. Excommunicated. So they're not happy with his testimony. They're not happy with the parents' testimony. So they summon the man a second time. So, you know, if you're a careful reader of this, you realize this is a court that's determined to get the answer that they want. And here is where things really start to get interesting. They tell the man, give glory to God. That's always the cover, right? Give glory to God. That's why they had the 39 reasons of things you can work for. They wanted to give glory to God. Give glory. They can't see the glory of God standing right in front of them. So they basically say, own up and tell the truth, which means confirm our suspicions. And then they say to him, we know this man is a sinner. This, this is, you know, there's a great, I mentioned it recently, there's a great line in Flannery O'Connor, and I forget which story, where she talks about this guy, and she says he always had the sort of black intuition that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. In other words, there's a kind of religiosity that keeps the law as a way of buffering a person off from the presence of the living God. That's what actually happens to the Pharisees, right? They, they, are, they are rule keepers in such a way that, in other words, Torah observance has become for them a means of actually shielding them from encountering the living God himself. This is religion as a protection racket. And beloved, it happens all the time. You could write the history of Protestantism in the 19th and 20th centuries around this theme. Not to mention that the court here is leading the witness, right? We know this man's a sinner. It's like announcing your verdict in advance. But this guy, this is a witness who's going to think for himself. This is my absolute favorite guy that Jesus heals in the Gospels. He is the most interesting person, recipient of a miracle by far. Now, of course, he has an advantage. There's a whole long chapter on his miracle. The other guys, we don't have as much text about. But notice what he says now. He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. So, first-hand testimony, you know, is usually good enough for people. You know what it is? I mean, we usually accept it unless we're determined not to. So the court says, uh, well, what did he do? Again, how did he open your eyes? And you know what we find out next in this text? 
This guy has a hidden talent for sarcasm and ironic banter. I mean, this guy is really gifted. Not to mention, he has real courage, courage his parents lacked. Also, he has discernment. He knows this court is uninterested in the truth. So he replies, I have told you already and you didn't listen. You know what? In the Gospels, there's nobody but Jesus who talks to these people like this. Jesus is the only guy who says to these people, I told you already, you didn't listen. This guy's, this guy's uh, uh, you know, in the realm of being converted four minutes. right? And he turns to this court and says, I told you already, you didn't listen. His parents are terrified. They're like, I don't know, uh, he's of age, let him talk for himself. Yeah, yeah, he was blind. I don't, we don't know how he got his sight back. Ask him. Son, they want to talk to you. Go, go, go on in there. He gets in there and says, I told you already, you didn't listen. It's magnificent, right? The light of God is broken into his life. The light of God. So he says in the text, I told you already you didn't listen. Now look at this. Why do you want to hear it again? You guys like this miracle story? <laughs> and, then, and then he does this. He has a sort of taunting show of naivete, of innocence. He says, do you want to become his disciples too? Now, you know this guy does not mean this, literally. You you want to hear the story again. So you guys, you want to become his disciples. This is a hand grenade, right? Right, This can get you a contempt of court citation. It's designed to provoke, and it does. They start hurling insults at him. The text says they hurled insults at him, and they said this. You are this fellow's disciples. Disciple. We are disciples of Moses. See, there you see the contempt for Jesus. You are this fellow, whoever this guy who healed you are, this guy with no name and no place and no credentials. You're his disciples. We're disciples of Moses. We have a long and honorable tradition. The rabbis were known as Moses' disciples. That's how rabbis refer to themselves. And then they say this. We know, and they're right here. They're right We know God spoke, even face-to-face to to Moses. There's no doubt about this. But as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. Again, it's hard for me to imagine anybody I know, including myself, not taking this side of the argument. Of course, there's a little bit of irony here from John. Because what does John tell us about where Jesus comes from? He tells us it in the first verse of the gospel. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's where I come from, the bosom of the Father. But still, it's tough to demonstrate that before a court like this. Right? I hope that we feel the force of this. We know God spoke through Moses. And by the way, through Moses and the fathers, we've got the rabbis in the synagogues. And we have our creeds and our confessions, right? We have our stuff. We don't know about this guy. He's a newcomer. It was the Old Testament church that killed Jesus. So now the man, unafraid, is really hitting his stride. If they thought they were going to back him off and intimidate him by this appeal to Moses, they're wrong. You know what he says next? 
Now, that is remarkable. It's like, like Columbo, right? Now, now, now that, that's remarkable, he says. Some translations say, I find this surprising. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Like, like so what? You don't know where he comes from. And so know what he's going to do next? He's going to give them a little lesson in theology. The real chutzpah. It's not a great lesson, but he's going to try. They say, remember, they say, we know this man's a sinner. We know it. And he says, we know God doesn't listen to sinners. That's how his little soliloquy starts. We know. He listens to the godly person who does his will. It's a little flat. It's not the richest theology of the Messiah, but, you know, it's, it's in the ballpark. He seems to think the miracle is a result of answered prayer, and that means Jesus is a godly man, or else he could do nothing. It seems reasonable. I mean, you, you could cite some Old Testament scriptures for this. But as you can guess, this little lecture does not sit well with the authorities. They repl- So now they're really mad at him. After they hurled insults at him, and, uh, uh, and uh, you know, draw, dragged out the Moses card, played the Moses card, he then continues with more irony and there's a little theology lesson of his own, and then they say, you were steeped in sin at birth. There's no viciousness like religious viciousness. This is, and this is pure viciousness. They see him or his parents as the cause of his blindness. And in their own rage, ironically, they agree with the miracle because they confess that he was steeped in sin from birth. It's funny that in their anger, they're implicitly saying you were blind from birth. That means you were a sinner. Besides, the guy's impertinent. He's showing a lack of respect. How dare you lecture us, they say. Right? This is... A scary situation that this guy is in. I mean, I know there's some humor in it when we see it from our distance, but it's a very sober, scary thing to be before a court like this. I remember when uh, Cheryl and I were first married, um, I used to drive too fast. And in New York State, they would take your license away if you got three tickets within 18 months. So I got one. And then a few months later, I got a second one. And I go to the judge in Highland for the second one, and he just chews me out. Lectures me about this is, you got to drive slower, blah, blah, blah. If you get a third ticket, I'm going to take your license. And you're going to say, and I'm going to fine you, and I'm going to do this and that. Yes, sir, right? So it's very scary, right? You're, you're, your self-confidence is not at, the, at its peak when a judge is lecturing you in public and threatening you. So, of course, a few months later, I get the third ticket. So I go into the, into the uh, court, and there's the judge. And he says, what are you doing in here? What are you doing? In here? You know, and, and he just, the, last, the second lecture was mild compared to the third one. He lectures me. I'm taking your license. You can't drive. Cheryl had to drive me everywhere for six months. 
I could drive to and from work no other place. I couldn't go to the store. He revoked my license. He lectured me. He told me, he told me if I violated this, these terms, he would put me in jail. He was really angry. So it's terrifying, right? So I walk out of the court without a license, without a registration. I get in my car. I get in my car. I pull out of the parking lot. This is a true story. I go to a stop sign right adjacent to the courthouse. I'm 250 feet from the courthouse. I stop really carefully. Like, I make sure I stop to a dead stop. Like, and count to Mississippi, right? And then I make my right-hand turn. And you know what happened next? Lights go on behind me. So now I think I'm in some movie made in Mississippi somewhere or something. Right? So, so a police officer pulls me over. I roll the window down. The courthouse is right there. I just left. And he says, license and registration. And I say, I just handed the, are you kidding me? He goes, license and registration. And I'm thinking this is some sort of a joke or something. And I said, sir, I was just in court. They took my license and registration. Are you saying to me that you're driving this vehicle without a license and registration? Yes. Yeah. And then he tickets me because I didn't put my blinker on at the stop sign. On top of that, three tickets. No license, no registration, failed to use your right turn signal. He takes me back in the court. He brings me to the judge, who is so furious with me. He says, sit him down. I'll see him in a couple minutes, right? So I, I call Cheryl up, and I say, look, I think it's possible I could spend the night in a Highland jail. I mean, I don't want to be a civil rights icon for speeders or anything, but I could get jailed for this, you know? So I, I sense that I, until you've gone through that, it's a terrifying experience. It's a terrifying experience. This guy's in front of a court that can, in fact, lead to his excommunication or his death. And he is nevertheless standing there and courageously, even before he really believes in Jesus as the Son of God, declaring who he is. It takes a lot of courage to do this. So they say to him, how dare you lecture us? Right? I was not about to lecture this judge. Of course, I was in the wrong. This guy's not in the wrong. But... So the, notice what the text says. They threw him out. You know what that means? They excommunicated him from the synagogue for rebellion against the authorities. In other words, he's thrown out of the synagogue because of his behavior in this court. And so the interrogations are over, and we come to the final point. The point, the point of this passage, really, blindness and sight. Jesus finds the man. He confesses faith in Jesus in verse, and worships him as Lord in verse 38. You know what's happened now? He's recovered his spiritual sight. And beloved, this is the greater miracle in this text. Right? The, the, the point of the text is he's been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He's been excommunicated right into the arms of the Lord of the temple. It's a beautiful thing. And there are folks still around, so Jesus has one more little bit of teaching to do. He says, for judgment I've come into the world so that the blind will see and that those who see will become blind. 
That's a forceful little snap at the end of this miracle, and it lets none of us off the hook. The force of it is this. Those who know their blindness will see. Those who think they see will become blind. And the Pharisees actually seem to get what Jesus is driving at here, right? They say, what? Are we blind too now? And Jesus concludes, if you were blind, notice this, if you were blind, you'd not be guilty of sin. If you were blind, in the good sense, meaning genuinely knowing your need, humble and needy, but now you claim to be those who see, your guilt remains. So I want to close with two quick applications. The first one's called sight, and the second one's called blindness. So yes, under sight and blindness, we have two points, sight and blindness. So it's a sign foreseen by the prophets that the Messiah would do this. We, we heard it in the uh, Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 42. The Messiah is going to give opening of sight, opening the eyes of the blind. And you know what this does? It unquestionably shows the tender mercy of God for human beings. One of my favorite citations from the early church fathers comes from Irenaeus, who said the glory of God is the human person fully alive. There's no competition between your flourishing, your glory, and God's glory. God wants you to share his glory. So, But this healing, as the text makes clear, is a kind of sign or sacrament of this inner spiritual illumination and awakening from the light of the world. Paul puts it this way. We heard this in the New Testament lesson. The same God who said, notice this, let light shine out of darkness. He's evoking Genesis chapter 1. That same God has made light shine in your heart, our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ. So we could put what happened here this way. The blind man saw the human face of Christ when he was healed. But he saw the glory of God in the face of Christ when he believed and worshipped. Right? He saw the human face when he was healed. He saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. He saw the gospel when he worshipped. Now this happens to us from the human side when God humbles us and breaks us and shows us our own blindness. Or Jesus comes so that we can sing as we will in our closing hymn. Amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It's taken from this text, I presume. Second point here in closing is sight. And this, this point is a kind of but, a kind of qualifier to the first point. We still walk by faith and not by sight, not by face-to-face vision of God. So faith is a kind of seeing, but the kind of seeing that you have in faith is a kind that sees through a glass darkly. It's very important to get this. It's a little nuanced. It's harder to sing, you know, I was blind and now by faith through a glass darkly, not yet face to face, I see. It's not as catchy as Amazing Grace, but it's accurate. Right? There's a qualifier, right? I was blind... And now by faith, through a glass darkly, not yet face to face, I see. 
And forgetting this is hubris. I submit to you that this is the problem often with religious types of people like us and with the Pharisees. Right? There's a thinking that we have a totally lucid grasp on things. Right? And to think that way is pharisaical. It leads to real blindness and real distortion. We're always seeing through a glass darkly. And even, even in our systems of scripture, I love the Reformed faith and the Reformed tradition and Reformed theology and the, and the coherence of it and the beauty of it and the way things connect together. But we need to have a deep awareness that all of our systems are imperfect and impartial and open to revision until God comes and we see him face to face. No human construction can exhaust the riches that were... So though we see, we don't have a completely lucid grasp. So now we think we do, and that creates the problems the Pharisees have. The Pharisees have no sense of humility of seeing through a glass darkly. And so this applies as well, I think, in dealing with other people. We think we see them clearly and their sins, but we rarely see ourselves clearly. Especially if we don't take the time to do some self-evaluation. It's exquisitely hard for us, is it not, to see our own hearts? To have a mirror into our own soul. That's why we need other people to tell us. And we need the mirror of Holy Scripture to kind of hold it up. Hold it up. And we've said this before in here, but the, the nub of this is we should be pretty hard on ourselves and very merciful and gentle with other people. That's really the key to our sanctity, I think. So, Jesus has come. He's given us light. But notice, because we're not yet in glory, we have the danger of becoming like these Pharisees, of becoming blind. So, Spurgeon, the great 19th century Baptist preacher, said this. He said, it's not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It's not our weakness that hinders Christ. Jesus is not at all thwarted by your weakness and your brokenness and your failure. Right? Not at all. It's our bigness. It's our strength, he says. It's not our darkness that hinders Christ. It's our supposed light that holds him back. That's exactly the pharisaical, but also our problem as human beings. The inner Pharisee in all of us. So we rejoice that God, the creator, has made his light shine in our hearts. He has given us the knowledge of his glory in Christ. But we do so soberly as those who realize we still see through a glass darkly, right? That we're waiting for the day when faith becomes sight and when we will be like him, fully whole, fully healed. See him as he is when he appears. Amen.